The views and opinions expressed on this show belong solely to the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of any outside institutions unless explicitly stated. What's up, everyone? My name is Steve Vandewall, and I'm the host of Cannabis Cum Laude, a podcast devoted entirely to cannabis. This podcast will cover a full spectrum of topics, including cultivation, business, medicine, politics, culture, advocacy, and everything in between. Because let's face it, the cannabis industry is very complicated. It's robust, and it has a ton of moving parts. So it's going to be my job to help you understand it a little bit better. So tune in every week for a brand new episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you really, really, really like the show and are interested in sponsoring, please shoot me an email at logistics at cannabiscumlaude.com. Now enjoy the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to a very special podcast series of Cannabis Cum Laude called High Stakes, the green rush of cannabis investing. This is a podcast series that will delve into the dynamic and often complex world of investing in the cannabis industry. My name is Steve Andwal. I am the host of Cannabis Cum Laude and the founder and chief executive officer of Vandy's, which is a uh, hopefully soon to be licensed micro business uh, specializing in the delivery of craft cannabis products in Rochester, New York. And alongside me is my good friend, a mentor of mine. Um, his name is Greg Procton, and he is a sage in cannabis accounting. And we he's here to shed light on the financial intricacies of this sector uh, amongst other things. From its contentious past as a Schedule One drug to its burgeoning presence in the investment landscape, we're going to explore a myriad of opportunities and challenges that define cannabis investing today. This series is designed both for the savvy investor looking to capitalize on this green rush, as well as the ambitious cannabis entrepreneur eager, eager to transition from legacy to legal markets. This podcast is going to be de- uh, broken up into three segments, where first we're going to understand cannabis today and provide a brief historical overview. Part two is going to be surrounded, uh, is going to be involved navigating today's cannabis market, really um, talking about the legal and financial complexities. And lastly, we're going to discuss the opportunities investing in the cannabis landscape, both as an investor and an entrepreneur. Uh, so, Mr. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No, of course. And I appreciate, you know, I give all the credit to Greg. He brought this idea to me. This is something that we've been working hand in hand with uh, as I um, really attempt to transition from the legacy market to the legal market with Vandy's. Um, going through the license process, going through the real estate securing process, and now going through the capital raise process. Um, this has proved to be a very complex, uh, um, multifaceted, and, and kind of a, a, an interesting but difficult process that you've really helped uh, me navigate through, which to be honest, I couldn't have gotten where I far, have gotten as far as I have without you. Um, so I'm really excited to dive into this because I do believe you are one of the most knowledgeable people in this space. Um, and I'm really excited to kind of understand the little bit of the background. Why, why is cannabis a more complicated industry to invest in? Um, where, are, where's the value? Where is the, where, where are the issues? We're going to cover a, a, a whole array of things today. Uh, but as I mentioned before today, uh, right now, what I really want to do is I want to dive in to the historical side 
uh, of cannabis legalization so we can really get an idea of why is this issue so complex? Why isn't it just a matter of going to the bank, getting a loan, going to a venture capital fund, raising some capital? Why is this so complex? Uh, and it dates back many, many years. So Greg, I'm hoping that you can start us out today with giving me uh, an understanding of why cannabis is a difficult industry to invest in from a legal perspective. Well, first of all, I appreciate all the kind words. I certainly don't know that I'm as much a sage in the space as many others, but I appreciate it nonetheless. The interesting thing, the more I dug into it over the years, realizing you know, the story we've been told for so long is being been that cannabis is this evil plant. And when you dig in and you see the source, like anything else, you know, in 1970, when Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act and made cannabis a Schedule One drug, um, you really had to look into what the intentions were. And years later, a top eight of his came out, John Erlingman, I think his name was, or is, said that it was to focus on war protesters and people of color. They wanted the ability to go into people's homes, disrupt their lives and disrupt their situations. So that was their intent. So they sold it, you know, propaganda, whatever. They sold it as being this evil thing that everybody should turn their back on. So fast forward 50 years, that's the story everybody's been told. So you have a couple generations that have gone through that only know, well, it's this evil drug, it's illegal. So because of that, all these stigmas come with it. And, and that trickles down to the investors. To the reason why we're having this conversation is that people have this perception that is ill-guided from a, a policy that was set up not for that reason. It was just to send people down a different path. So when you fast forward and you look through history about it being an illegal drug and a Schedule One drug, and we'll get into this in greater detail, but it, it, it really restricts a cannabis business from any Schedule One drug, from anyone that was doing Schedule One, selling Schedule One drugs. They set it up so that you could not deduct normal operating expenses for your business. They went to penalize you as much as possible. So with that, you also had banking issues. And then you had, because you had these issues and plus the stigma on top of it, investors were not interested in touching it because they believed that it was this evil thing that shouldn't bother with. They, they're remotely aware of some of the deduction issues. They're remotely aware of some of the banking issues, but they don't dig any further because of those stigmas. And that's the position we find ourselves in yourself and other hopeful licensees, licensees of the past and other States. It's the same issue everywhere. So what you have is a very short supply of people interested in investing in the market but a very high demand for investment dollars. So it creates, it creates this conundrum that we're talking about today. Well, and it's also interesting to point out that there's, there's two other issues, right? We have these state legal programs, which if you follow the state laws, you can operate as a legal business, but it's federally illegal, you know, and without the Cole memo, which, you know, maybe we'll talk about briefly of what that meant and how, you know, especially over the last 10 years, the industry has been kind of going like this you couple that with, you know, New York's program who has been very adamant um, about keeping the business here, the money here and the equity here, right? It, New York state as a legislative body wants New York residents to own the industry. So not only are we having issues with access to capital because of the federal, you know, the federal legality versus state legality, but we are also for most part restricted um, from financing this operation 
at least in my my experience, finding investors within the state of New York alone who have residencies in New York state because with true parties of interest and we can get into that in a little bit, all of a sudden, if you bring on a big, a monster investor who maybe owns half the company or what have you, and they're from Texas or something, all of a sudden the state is like, huh, that's outside money. Maybe you're treated a little bit differently. So the investor pool is already small, especially for, you know, I've had, you know, we've had conversations about this finding people who are in commercial real estate, you know, people who have deep pockets that, you know, see the value in this are entrepreneurial heart. But when you, when it comes down to the X's and O's, it's just inherently too risky for some people. But then you have this, you know, you have some other high risk investors and people who are more likely to dabble in this space. And you're kind of restricted to people who live within this state if you want an optimal chance of getting a license. So, um, there's a lot of, that's a lot to unpack, but there, this isn't just go find a, you know, a, a, a rich guy or gal or a venture capitalist in a different state. This is very, this is, a, there's a very small pool of people and entities. I feel like that people like me have access to. And even when we do find them, there's a whole educational process of here's the history. Here's 280E. Here's what the state program says. You know, there's a, it's in, you know, what I've realized is that there's a lot of investors who are not going to give you one hour of their time to walk through this historic, you know, so there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to convey to these people. And I hope that, you know, by the end of this, we're able to, you know, kind of open some eyes to invest some investors and, you know, help them understand, oh, wow, this is an alternative investment. There is value here, the risk, here's some other things associated with the cannabis industry. Cause Greg, it's a lot. It's, you know, you and I are having conversations almost daily now about, you know, have you considered this? Have you thought about this? You know, how to creatively set up your business so you can maximize deductions. This is not for, you know, your everyday entrepreneur. You're not for the faint of heart. There is a lot to understand. Uh, and I hope that by the end of this, we're going to have, you know, more educated investors and more educated entrepreneurs. Well, and you hit the nail on the head. And right now is a once in a lifetime event for in our lifetime. Thus, the definition of once-in-a-lifetime event. The uh, the reality, though, it's kind of a perfect storm because the anticipation, and we'll get into it, but the anticipation is cannabis is going to be rescheduled to Schedule 3, yep. late 2024, time for the elections, of course. And if that happens, that removes the 280E implications. If 280E is removed and it's a Schedule 3 drug, banks are suddenly interested, credit card companies. It changes the playing field dramatically. So from an investor perspective, it's a little higher risk now, but a year from now when this is rescheduled, it changes the dynamic dramatically. But what makes it unique in the perfect storm is folks like yourself trying to get a license now in a new market. First to market is everything. So some people might say, well, why don't you wait? Why doesn't a licensee wait until it's rescheduled and then it's less risky and then you could possibly get bank loans and you go, well, that's great, but then you're not first to market. And then you have, you're dealing with a lot more competition and you're not striking while the iron's hot. You're just going to be one of many instead of one of a few. Yeah. So the, again, that's kind of the genesis of this conversation is to educate investors and say, now's the time that you can maximize a return. And from, an, from a licensee perspective, you can get open with the capital you need. Yeah. Well, you know, and once, if it gets... Uh, rescheduled to a schedule three, you know, I probably would be going, I would have went to the bank already, you know, 
I wouldn't have to be relying so much on, you know, and you're already going to end up giving away more than you want just due to the riskiness of the business, right? So I think in a year where I could go and at least get, you know, some of my capital uh, expenses, some of the build out funded, some of these capital improvements that I could just go get a loan for at a normal rate. Now I have to rely on everything on, you know, private equity pretty much. And it, it's, it's, it's really difficult. Um, I think it's important to understand like what the financial picture looks like now and how different it would look like um, as a schedule three. And I'm wondering if you could maybe provide an example of, you know, what it would look like differently if I was operating as a business now from a talk from a, a 280 E and a deduction perspective and how that matters from a revenue and profit perspective and what that looks like as a schedule three drug where safe banking is passed and, and 280 E no longer is relevant. Okay. So this is the snooze portion of the podcast to put everybody get into the accounting realm. So if a cannabis business operating today is subject to 280 E and 280 E says you cannot deduct any normal operating expenses, you cannot deduct payroll, you cannot deduct uh, rent, uh, utilities. I'm speaking specifically from a dispensary perspective. When you get into uh, a processor or a cultivator, you can allocate some costs to that, but that long story short, that's a lot more complicated and definitely put people to sleep. But 280 really restricts your ability to deduct expenses. If you can't deduct your expenses, the only thing you can truly deduct, and really they don't call it a deduction, they call it a credit, is your cost of the product you sold. So if you're a dispensary, and yet let's say you're doing 5 million a year in sales and your cost of goods at two and a half million. So your gross profit is two and a half million. You're paying whatever your effective tax rate is on two and a half million dollars. So that makes it extraordinarily higher. You may only generate before taxes, you may only generate $200,000 of income to say, but, and if you were paying federal tax on $200,000 of income, depending on your tax rate, keep it simple. 30%, let's say that's $75,000. If you're paying 30% on two and a half million, that's 750,000 in taxes. So you see the spread is significant. It's very cost prohibitive to be successful in the cannabis space right now, because of 280, it's all about volume. You have to move a lot of volume. You have you, to be a dispensary that makes them has a million in revenue. It's going to be hard to survive because you're not going to be able to cover all of those expenses that you can't deduct. Now at a state level, New York State is an example. New Jersey is an example. They've decoupled from 280E, which means that they allow you to deduct those operating expenses, which is save you some tax dollars, but your state tax rate is generally so much lower than your federal rate that it's great, but it's it's not a difference maker overall. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, anything helps, but at the, at the end of the day, it's really about that federal tax rate. I mean, the nice thing, and that's why the micro business for me has been so... Um, attractive is because, you know, there's a lot more opportunity for write-offs, you know, and that would be, that's why I've kind of pushed people in that direction. Um, one of the reasons I've pushed people in that direction. Um, but yeah, I look at, you know, I, I know a business around here, you know, for example, they started a big processing company and they started it back in the CBD with during with their CBD license and they bought extractors and they bought, they made capital improvements, they put all this stuff and it was all right offable because it was done under the, you know, an entity that was hemp, Brilliant. Yep. right? So, which makes it when you, you know, if you were going to do that in the cannabis industry, I don't think you could necessarily write off all that equipment and all that, or at least not as much as you could doing business as the hemp industry or as the hemp entity. Is that? Well, it's 
not completely true because if you're a processor, you can roll in cost into your inventory by allocating those costs at anything that's directly related to plant touching. So a process, processing machine, whatever, an extractor, you could deduct ultimately through depreciation. However, if it is, you know, um, folks working in the office, you can't deduct their computers. You can't deduct any of those things anyway. But if you're a CBD business, you certainly could because okay. you're fully compliant, fully legal. On the 280E side, on the cannabis side, you're really restricted what you can do. The beauty of a micro business is that, you know, if you, for instance, if you have a storefront within your business, you have staff that when there's slow times can be working in cultivation or working in extraction or pro uh, processing. When they're working in those spaces, you can deduct part of their payroll. If you're a dispensary, there's exception to this, but generally speaking, if you're in a dispensary, you can't deduct their payroll for anything. So the micro business gives you a lot more flexibility. Same with being a processor or a cultivator. There's more you can deduct because you can roll more into your inventory costs. Yeah. And this is why, you know, a, a quick aside, why it's important. There's a lot of amazing accountants and financial experts in this world, but this is why, especially you entrepreneurs, you know, you sole member entrepreneurs who are just like me, you know, try to grind it out. Um, it's important to have somebody on your team and in your circle that has a cannabis focus, whether it's an accountant or a bookkeeper or um, a lawyer, right? Because these are all things that can make or break you. And even the best accountant who maybe, you know, if you don't have this deep knowledge, like you just said, like, oh, you know, you're working four hours in the dispensary and four hours in the processing, that's 20 hours on a full-time employee, that's deductible labor. And over the course of two or three employees over the course of a year, that is significant deductions. And, you know, without, you know, having somebody like Greg or, you know, like our friend Rosanna, shout out to her in your corner, who knows that type of stuff, uh, you could be setting yourself up for uh, some tremendous issues. And the issue could be a 280E audit. Um, you know, I have a friend who lives here now who is working in the licensed business who um, was back, came from the legal Colorado market years ago. They got hit with a 280E E audit. And I think it was eight years after the fact, we were actually in uh, having a conversation he goes, I'm still feeling the effects of it today. So it's, it's not, a, you always say it's not a matter of if you're going to get audited and it's when, and if you are not very careful and you don't have somebody on your team who knows the intricacies of this business, you could really screw yourself in the end, which could ultimately lead to shuttering your business. Uh, and, or worse, because in the cannabis space, because it's not federally legal, you cannot declare bankruptcy. So you don't have, you won't have protection under bankruptcy yeah. in that world. So you're just, it's like school loans. You're stuck forever, right? So, I mean, it's an excellent point. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of good attorneys, there's a lot of good accountants. But at the end of the day, if they're not familiar with the space, there is some exposure. There is, um, and there's certainly a lot of resources out there that can get it done. But if you don't, you know, you might have a family attorney that you've loved forever that's handled all your uh, house closings, whatever. But the, at the end of the day, if they're not, versed in this, it could be problematic. The average in California, there was a study, the average audit recovery from the IRS on a 280 audit was $2,700 an hour of an agent's time. That's four to five times more than what a non-cannabis audit is. So that gives you a perspective of how damning it could be. And they're looking for stuff. It's shooting fish in a barrel for them. 
because there are so many businesses that aren't doing things right. They're being over aggressive and trying to, they think they're being smart hiding things. But the reality is that IRS has agents that are specific, specifically trained in the space to find those things. Well, and with a 5X return, there is an incentive for them to go after these 100%. businesses. They're making five, you know, it sounds crooked, but that's just the, the nature of the game. If you're going to, you know, audit and get $2,700 an hour versus $500 an hour, I know which business I'm auditing, you know? You know so. Absolutely. And that I've heard estimates as high as 10 times yep. the difference. So um, it's crazy, but it's a reality of it. So that's, you know, that's a little bit of, it's scary. You know, that's something that I think about every single day is, you know, when this goes, you know, when the license comes in is making sure that every single thing is done appropriately. The good news and as scary as this sounds and this is much of a deterrent as it may be for somebody. The good news is I think we're arguably closer than ever to seeing this uh, safe banking act um, with the with the rescheduling provision in it passing. Right there, it does have bipartisan support. We're coming up on election year, and I do believe, you know, I'm politically uh, homeless. To be honest, I do think that Biden is going to have to do something drastic uh, and head turning to to make some waves and to you know have a chance of reelection. If you have bipartisan support. I think this is something that would could easily be done. I think it's necessary, especially now that you see some red states going online. It's only a matter of time. But that being said, if there is one thing to change in this industry that could, you know, is most powerful thing that could probably happen right now is this safe banking and 280E removal. Um, I know for my business, it would make a huge difference for an industry. I mean, think about it. E-commerce, right? Credit cards. Imagine being able to go to a website, buy your cannabis, put your credit card in and have it delivered to your door. I mean, that's the world that I want to be in and do business with right now. That's not really possible. Um, but the good news is, is from an investment perspective is that time is coming. Um, and I think right now is really the best time. Like you always say to me right now is the best time to invest in a cannabis business because you're likely to get more for your money than you know, when the risk is gone, because now you'll have access to banks, everybody will be doing it. It just won't be as a heavy, a heavy or a risky lift. Um, well, it's again, it gets back to the supply and demand right now. There's a huge demand for investment dollars and very low supply. So thus the rate of return is going to be higher. The expectation is going to be higher from an investor perspective. If we flip that and this is schedule three, Banking's online, which I don't think banking will be automatic as soon as it's approved, but it'll be soon thereafter. Yeah. Um, the online aspect will be interesting how states regulate that because it, states will still be able to control it, but still there'll be more opportunity. Um, but the at the end of the day, it comes down to, uh, remember what the hell I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... I think that the most important takeaway from this is from an investment perspective, understanding that the biggest issue with this, with this plant right now is the schedule one status, right? Schedule one status puts it at the highest drug category. We all know it shouldn't be there. We know the reason we, we don't even need to get into that. And that's why banking is tough. That's why investment is tough. That's why tax liability is high. That's why investment risk is high. And that's why it is kind of an investment deterrent for most investors. That being said, and this is a good transition into what's next, is if that 
280E goes away and safe banking passes this time next year, or more likely in the next two years, the industry landscape and the investment landscape will look much different and much better and much safer for all of us. Um, any final comments before we kind of wrap up the his, his, history side of this uh, this this series? Anything I missed? No, I, th- I think your point is that, again, the, the salient point of all of it is right now, investors have an opportunity to get a better return on their money. A year from now, when it's rescheduled, there'll be more investors. There'll be banks potentially online. So that demand is is going to change a little bit, but the supply is going to increase dramatically. So it's going to drive rates down. So in terms of that perfect timing to invest would be now. Yeah, it's it's a tricky situation because there's part of me that's like, maybe I should just wait it out, you know, just wait till it's safe. But there is, if you look at a, a success curve of cannabis businesses, those who can get off, get off up and running and off the ground early and efficiently and optimally, you're going to make your biggest return in three to five years. Eventually, once there's a million craft businesses online and delivery services and cultivators, you know, I don't think you'll see full commoditization, um, but I think you're going to see it being much more difficult. You're just, the numbers aren't going to be there like they are now. So it's kind of that, you know, do I get in now and take the risk and give up some equity, give up more equity than I would in a year so I can get off the ground and make my return? Or do I wait one or two years, give up less, main, maintain more control, but also lose those hot years of, you know, those first one to three years, you know, it's, it's a tough situation. I'm more, I lean high risk, high reward first in, like I understand the value of like, Hey, if I got to give up 49% to build my dream facility, get up and running and rock it years one through five, I know it'll be worth it. Um, but there's some people who are like, I don't want any hands in the cookie cookie jar. I want to retain my equity. I want to give away as little as possible. And that that's right too. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. It really comes down to entrepreneurial preference and it really comes down to investor preference at the end of the day. Well, and the reality to your point, do I want 51% of a $10 million business or do I want a hundred percent of a $2 million business? And, and really that's, those are the numbers that people look at. You know, if you're first to market, we've spoken earlier before the podcast about a specific uh, dispensary that, well, there's a number out there. There's not that many dispensaries that are absolutely crushing it. And the numbers you're seeing out of these places are just absurd. Yeah. Housing works. I think this year ended with at 24 million and they went online like, March? That's actually low compared to what I know a couple others are doing. But the point is, what's it going to look? And of course, they're competing with a lot of the, you know, quote unquote sticker shops, whatever. But what's it going to look like two years from now when the market is, well, three to five years from now when the market is saturated? They're going to be doing a fraction of what they were doing. But by then they've already reaped the rewards, right? They're just going to be another shop. But the the difference is they're going to have their brand. People are going to know them. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's, that's. I'm glad you said that because yes, the returns are great in the beginning. First to market, big, you know, we're seeing some of these dispensaries, some cartoonish numbers, quite frankly, yes. R- ridiculous, especially considering the square footage. You, you just don't see anything like that. Um, but really, I think it comes down to his brand building is, you know, it takes years to, you know, it takes a few years to build a business, but to build a brand, you probably really need 10 years to build a brand, right? A good brand something that stays along, some, something that everybody knows, something that's, you know, legitimate. Um, 
And that is, you know, there's no really rushing that. And I think that's, you know, kind of the other inherent value of like, yes, I got to get rid of some equity, but if I can get two, you know, two years in this business is a lot. If I can get a two to three year head start on just building a brand, by the time that I get to that point where you start to see the downturn of revenues and a little bit more um, stabilization, um, stabilization, really. you're still, there's still something great about stable. Even if you're not making $24 million a year, if I knew that for the next 10 years, I could make 10 million bucks a year. All my staff gets paid great. All the bills are paid. I can walk home with a, you know some money in my pocket. That's great. But it's this high, high and low, low and high, high and low, low that somebody like me and most people need stability. You can't, you know, when you're trying to feed your family and when you're trying to make strategic financial and wealth decisions, it's hard to do that when, one day it's like this and then a real changes and it's like this and it's, it's tough to be a good business owner in an extremely volatile market. So yeah, one, one last point before we cut, cause you, you made an excellent point on the stability aspect of things. If, if I'm a, if I'm first to market, there's a lot of growing pains. I get to year three, four, five, when the market starts to saturate a little bit and stabilizes, I already know exactly what I should be uh, monitoring, measuring, uh, me what metrics I need to track, how many, you know, people a tender should do per hour, whatever the, whatever the metrics are. I already know it. I already have the growing pains. Yeah. So I can be profitable at, instead of 10 million, I can make it profitable at three and a half million. Somebody comes into the market and suddenly is three and a half million dollars. They don't have all those growing pains under their belt. Yeah. They don't know what metrics they're checking. So they're going to be less profitable by default because they're going to just, the errors of their way. Yeah. I think just having the experience and having the numbers and just, you know, I, you know, I have been frustrated like most people on the untimely rollout of this program, right? Because two and a half years ago when I went legal, I thought, man, month or two, I'll get up and running month or two. I'll be ready to rock. And the truth is I'm glad that it happened because I never would have been ready. And if I would have raised, if I would have tried to do then what I'm doing now, I probably would have failed because I just didn't have the experience in the reps and the, a true understanding of like, okay, this is what it takes to do this. And this is what it takes to do this. And this is how much time it takes to do this. And I would rather build it this way than that way. You need some time under your belt to really make it. So, you know, for me, this kind of gray, you know, pre-licensing area has been, you know, maybe this is just the optimist in me. Um, but it has been a blessing in disguise. But now, you, you know, when you get in early, now I can get another couple of years to like, all right, now I'm going to adjust the legal market. I'm going to be using my tra track and trace software. I'm going to be using my POS, uh, POS software. I can really run it like a real business. So by the time that year three, year four, whenever, you know, kind of the more late entrants come in, I'll have my two and a half or three years of pre-market, my two and a half, three years of post-license. And I'll be you know, probably on my way to some real stability and longevity and growth. And, uh, you know, the reality is it just takes time to build a successful business. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely is something that does not happen overnight. I mean, yeah, you'll have these dispensers that go online and make $24 million selling last year's outdoor weed. That is a fluke that is not sustainable. And those places will, will not be the ones that, make it. I think it's going to be the brands. I think it's going to be the the people who've been doing this a while, who have a great product, you know, the craft breweries, the craft wineries. That's, you know, I'm biased. That's, that's where I've always leaned to. But I think in this business, when you want true growth and you want real 
sustainability, it's going to lie in good brands with good, efficient operations. Yeah, and also being able, uh, first to market, the other benefit is you're going to survive the wave of the MSOs that come in. Yeah. The Walmarts of the world that are, are going to price cut. They're just, you're not going to be able to compete with them. So you have to build that brand. Yeah. You have to build that niche. Otherwise, don't, don't do it because you'll be crushed in five years. Yeah, you can't just come out, you know, you can't just come out into a brand new market and start charging, you know, when the MSOs are charging 30 bucks an eighth for decent stuff, come out and say, hey, I'm a brand new brand. Here's my $50 eighth. They're like, okay. Just like if a, a non-Rolex brand came in and started charging $30,000 for a watch, people are like, well, who the fuck are you? If I want to do that, I'm going to Rolex. They're the only people who have built a reputation that can do that. So, excellent example. you know, yeah. it's, it's something that... You know, you entrepreneurs, I say people all this time, it's very easy to get shiny object syndrome in this business, right? Entrepreneurs were naturally very ADHD, ooh, new industry, new ideas. I do this all the time. I have to literally force myself to stay in my lane. And a lot of people, and I did this at first, and I kind of still have this problem now. I have tons of skews and blah, blah, blah. I tell people, you can literally make it on one skew. If you make infused lemonade and you're damn good on it, Take it to the end of the earth. Don't worry about gummies and chocolates and flour and pre-rolls and all this other freaking noise. It's garbage. Make your infused lemonade, right? I know this guy. He's uh, known as Miami Mango, and he's down in Florida. He's a huge commercial cultivator. Built his whole career on one strain, mango haze, right? So you don't have to have a Walmart-sized menu. You don't have to have 50 employees. You don't have to have 100,000 square feet. Find what you're really, really good at. Create a, a process learn how to make it at scale and take it to the end of the world. Cause I promise you, you can make it in this business with one pr really good product. I've seen it happen. It happens every day. And it's when people try to do too much. Oh, I want to do, you know, we're talking earlier on. I was like, Oh, I want to, I want to do infused cherry cordials and I want to do all brownies and cookies. It's noise. Stay in your freaking lane. And I'm telling you people, especially small entrepreneurs, stay in your lane and you can make it and you can make it with, with, one or two products. I've seen it and I'm seeing it happen every day. One or two quality products. Quality products. Yep, I agree. So let's wrap up this segment, a little bit of the history of the legality of cannabis. And it's going to provide a, a, a good transition into the second part where we're going to really dive in kind of the operational compliance and legal aspects of the current market um, and what investors and entrepreneurs can do to reel each other in. So stay tuned and we'll see you in the next segment. Thanks to our friends here at Rockbox Recording and Production in Rochester, New York. They are a full professional podcast and video studio designed by a radio guy for podcasters. Audio, video, voiceovers, editing, whatever. Mouth off at Rockbox at rockbox.com. You can follow Cannabis Cum Laude on LinkedIn and all other social media platforms, as well as Cannabuzz. And if you'd like to help support the show, search up Cannabis Cum Laude on Patreon. And of course, all of those links are in the show notes. Thanks for watching and listening.